Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change. All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. I'm so excited to introduce to all of you Penny Lacasso, who's joining us today for an interview or a conversation on Brave Feminine Leadership. Penny, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me along. I love these conversations. Now, um, I know that you've recently, amongst many things you do, and we'll get a chance to talk about that in a minute, but I know that you released a book called Hacking Happiness this year. Mm. And I really want to talk about that. And I want to talk about intentional adaptability. I've completed the online test and I can report back that my IAQ is an experimenter. So Interesting. Feeling, feeling good about that, I think. I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. Um, but we'll jump into all of that. But firstly, I'm going to turn around uh, your introductory question on yourself. And I'm going to say, Penny, who are you as a human being? Oh, <laughs> I love that. Um, I love this question because every time you answer it, I find that your answer changes. And that's the beauty of the question, because it's a question that makes you reflect and connecting with where you're at at this moment in time. So if I had to talk about who I am as a human being on um, today's date, which as we record this is what, the 22nd of December 2020, <laughs> in probably the craziest year that many of us have had, um, I would say I'm an imperfect experimenter. I am the mother of a 10-year-old and I'm a... Oh gosh, I'm a very passionate yogi and I'm someone who believes in possible. I love that. I've already got a million questions. <laughs> Earlier this year, I came across a quote that really resonated with me. And a couple of days ago, it sort of jumped out at me again. And I thought, it just reminds me of meeting Penny. And you and I only met very, very recently. But let me share it. I just want to see if it resonates anything with you. And you might already be familiar with it. So uh, excuse me as I look down. So it's by Howard Thurman, so a civil rights activist in the US. And the quote was, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> I've never heard it and I love it. Yeah, um, it took me uh, 39 years to actually come to a point where I understood that that is where the magic lies in terms of leading a full and, um, and happy life. So that completely resonates with me. Thank you for sharing it. thought it might. I... Um... I want to dive into, I know you spent a lot of time in the corporate space. Before, yeah. Or you jumped out and, and, you know, we can talk about what you're doing now. One of the reasons I was motivated to do this uh, interview series 
was because of a, a feeling and because of conversations with people who are in the corporate space today who, you know, as they're climbing various leadership roles, they're feeling alone. Um, there's a lot of self-doubt and it worries me that people are potentially not, um, not reaching their full potential. And then on the other hand, you know, I, um, I see that we're not moving the needle on increasing females in key leadership positions um, in a lot of our corporations today. And those couple of things um, I feel really passionate about. And here you are, uh, you know, an incredible female who stepped out of that corporate environment as so many females seem to be doing. Can you talk to me about your sort of experience and motivation and, and how you got there to stepping out? I spent 16 years as a, um, well, in the end, a senior executive at Shell. So working in a, a global giant. Um, I started at the very bottom and worked my way up. So um, I always think that's a really good place to start because I don't think you ever forget where you came from. Yeah. Um, which keeps it real. And you also have a really good understanding of the business when you've operated it at different levels. Um, I never begrudged my corporate career because I wouldn't be who I am today had I not have had those 16 magical years. I met unbelievable people. Shell was renowned for employing the top talent globally. So I got to work with some, you know, amazingly smart people. And it's really funny how you, um, when you, you know, they always say you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You know, at Shell, I spent a lot of time with a lot of people who were extremely bright. And, you know, that, it always just raises the bar. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I had this amazing career and it served me to a point in time, but I, um, I kind of got to 39 and, you know, first world problem. I had everything that you could, you know, you could ever want at the age of 39. I mean, I wasn't, you know, a billionaire or anything like that, but I ticked all the boxes that I was told, you know, if you tick all these boxes, um, you will be successful and therefore you will magically arrive at this place called happiness and, you know, and life will be amazing. And I was sitting there going, hang on, got everything materially that I ever thought I could need coming from a very working class, single parent background. I, um, you know, I've ticked all of these boxes, but I feel unfulfilled. How can there be this disconnect? And um, it was in that moment that I don't know how it happened, but I sort of asked myself, well, what is it that makes me happy? And I realized that there was a couple of key things. It was being humanly connected, it was positively impacting the lives of others, it was being present and in a moment, and it was sharing experiences. And then the second realisation was that those four things were all the things that continuously got sidelined by my pursuit of success, because I was so busy. Um, and I was like, well, hang on, maybe I got the equation back to fun. Maybe I've been living by someone else's definition of success, not my own. And what if I actually looked at the equation, not as success will equal happiness, but what if I reversed it and said, if I focus on the things that make me happy, success will be a byproduct of that. Yeah. And it was in that moment that I just sort of went, you know what, I'm gonna turn everything upside down in pursuit of happiness and I'm gonna see where it takes me. And that was six and a half years ago now. And that was the beginning of my journey. So what that looked like is people are always like, well, what does it look like to turn your life upside down? Within a seven month period, I left a 16 year career at the absolute top of my game as a female with high potential, which I, I can't stand the term because I'm yet to meet a female with no potential. Yes. Um, I left- Nice to know uh, yours was high though. Sorry? Nice to know yours was high, whatever that means. 
according to who it's all it's all based on perception yeah. right um i relocated my family from perth back to melbourne i left a um an 18 year relationship and i started my own purpose-driven company hackinghappy.co with the sole intent of helping others to find their happiness and then basically build the skills to inject more of it into each day and that was kind of the end of one life and the beginning of a new one so penny um did you have was there any sort of parachute or anything when you did that just in the sense that because that's a huge or did you know what you were going to do before you left you know did, so no. I definitely had financial independence, which made a huge difference. So, and I always say, you know, I think that's why I was able to manage such an amicable divorce with my ex-husband. Um, I So I was financially, financially independent, which made, it afforded me the ability to be able to invest in myself and have the financial runway to leap into this space. So I always say that, but sometimes I say, that that also um, is a bit of a barrier uh, from from what I have learned in my six years. Often, not having that huge sort of you know that financial runway means that you have to be more resourceful. Yeah. So um, so I definitely had financial runway, um, but you know I was investing my own um, money in myself. Mm -hmm. um, I had no idea what I was going to do. Absolutely none. And people told me when I left the safety of my old life, they were like, no one leaves. Why would you leave with nothing to go to? Like, you don't know what you're going to do. Like, it, for them, perceptually, it was crazy. And the more people told me I was crazy, the more in my gut I knew what I was doing was right. And it was so hard to explain because it was so uncomfortable and uncertain. But mm. something just told me that I was on the right path. Um, yeah. Can I ask, before we step right away from the corporate theme, mm. Do you think, looking backwards, that there's anything the organisation itself could have done that may have kept you engaged and, and may have helped you through um, that, you know, that, that choice, effectively, that you made to move on? And I'm not judging whether that's right, wrong or otherwise. It's just we talk about a, an exodus of females at a certain level from the workforce and I'm just intrigued to know, have you ever thought about that? No, I haven't. Um, and it was funny because it was kind of a series of events that played out where um, they tried, I was, uh, I was offered to stay in Perth, so offered um, uh, to rebase there permanently. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as I was concerned, what was offered financially was not um, commensurate with what I was giving up. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the considerations. And I was also, while all of this was going on, I was headhunted for another job, a very senior job at BHP Billiton wow. for a lot more money. Yep. And so I was about to jump the ship. And to be honest, before I even kind of came to the decision that this was what I was going to do and turn my life upside down, I actually thought I was going to leave Shell and walk straight into BHP Billiton. And when BHP Billiton and that whole headhunting process fell through, um, I was like, this is the moment. I've kind of I've cut all the, or burnt all the bridges. Yep. I'm standing here in the stillness. This is the time. I'm nearly 40 years old. So, you know, some people call it a midlife crisis. I think of it more as a midlife awakening. Yep. But Look, I definitely, I think, to be honest, at the time, if they had have dangled another carrot in front of me after, and, you know, had have kept raising the offers and the offers, with where I was at, I might have been convinced to stay. Um, but 
I don't know, I kind of think that the universe has a weird way of sequencing events once you kind of start to make a small mindset shift where things play out the way they should. So, yeah, yeah I think, you know, I probably could have, they probably could have prolonged it, um, but I think eventually, given where my mindset was heading, it would have prolonged it six to 12 months. And that's what I was going to assume that, you know, that, that pull, whatever that pull was, mm. was obviously strong um, and, and wouldn't have gone away. But this is the thing, it doesn't go away. And this is what I now know. I didn't know then, but what I now know now is that um, on average... <laughs> it's, it's like a little ghost in the back of the <laughs> I love See, it. This is why I'm happy because I have little people walking around with blankets in the <laughs> I love it. I first saw the appearance several minutes ago and I thought, I love, I love the fact that if you've got a blanket over your head, no one can see you. So <laughs> He's very considerate. That's gorgeous. Um, so sorry, where were we at? Remind we were me. just talking about you didn't know at the time that, yeah, um, yeah you didn't know. Um, I'm going to have to just pause this one sec. That's okay. Yeah, so where we were was just talking about you didn't realise at the time that that pull wouldn't go away, but you've learnt that since. Yeah, so what I've now observed with all, I mean, I've now had the beautiful opportunity to work with thousands around the world in sort of stepping into this space of what I call um, what they've longed for but avoided. And I always say that happiness sits at the intersection of longing and avoidance, which is, you know, it's a very interesting analogy. But um, what I find with the longing is that more often than not, we sit with this idea of this change that we want to make um, that's big and feels overwhelming and, you know, and hard and complex and uncertain. But more often than not, the time that we sit with that is roughly around the three year mark before we take any action. That's the average. And that is for those who actually take action because there are many people that never do because they're just too afraid. But for those who do take action, the time that you sit in that longing is roughly around three years. And it's funny because for me, it was three years from when I first started thinking about it to when I actually turned my life upside down. And then I started to notice this pattern in so many other people that I worked with. And as soon as I say to people, they're like, that you can see them going back in their mind. It's like, when did I start thinking about this? And you can see them keep making the connection. But yeah, it's roughly about three years. So, um, you know, I want you to sort of share the story about how you got started. And, um, you know, interestingly, perhaps the start of your career as a swimsuit model as well. Do you know the irony of that is that I actually did get the opportunity to do a Jets campaign with people like Melissa Gomes, who's like an international swimsuit model, swimsuit model, um, off the back of that. And I, 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 I had no idea about that. Oh, look, it's so funny what happened with that. But um, you want me to talk about how I became, how did I start, and how did I become so? I started with what I, I never, again, I didn't have this term. It, it, now people are like, oh gosh, it all sounds so succinct. And trust me, it never sounded like this six years ago. It's just that these light bulbs happen when you, you start to connect dots over time. So um, I lent into what I now call imperfect experimentation. And so I was like, well, um, you know, where do you start when you don't know where to start? And um, I had always been learnt, you know, or taught to have these perfect plans. And I was like, I don't know that there is a perfect plan in, in the realm that I'm stepping into. So I'm just going to start experimenting with different things 
that are in alignment with those four things that I mentioned earlier that make me happy, right? So human connection, positively impacting the lives of others, being present in a moment, sharing experiences. And I thought I'm also gonna leverage the stuff that I loved from my corporate career, which was helping people realize potential that they didn't know that they had um, through human connection and through building skills. And, um, you know, I had huge, well, my experience was in helping organizations make large scale change and I loved um, making change and I thought this is kind of where I'm going to play and so I started um, connecting with random people who were running community groups that I loved what they were doing trying to elevate women um, and sort of saying well you know what if I did a talk on this you know what's kind of the, the most topical thing at the moment what are people trying to change um, what if we ran a panel on this what if we did a workshop on this and basically that was how I started it was kind of taking um, the stuff that I loved from my corporate background that I knew I was good at, it was taking the things that I actually love that make me happy and just starting to experiment. That was the beginning. Feel, um, you know, because that, that to me sounds quite brave. You know, you're having to use a whole lot of new skills. I assume you're reaching out to networks to, you know, ask, ask for jobs and, you know, different things like that. You know, how did you, did you have any sort of doubts along the way or any sort of, fears or mindsets you had to overcome as part of that process? All the time. And the thing was, I wasn't tapping into my corporate networks. I oh. was actually tapping into new networks in the entrepreneurial space yeah. um, and women trying to start businesses because that seemed like, a you know, the right space for me to play. I was really passionate. I was like, well, you know, I am these women, so how do I help them overcome the limiting beliefs, overcome the fears to actually start to step into possibility of what, you know, what they long for. Um, did I have self-doubts? Oh my gosh, yes, hell yes. Um, so many self-doubts, like who am I to think that I can do this? You know, I, um, who am I to think I could be an entrepreneur? I have no experience, I've never done this before. Um, am I, like, I think the hardest thing in terms of the biggest fear that I had, I never realised until about 18 months in um, how much I attached um, my self-worth and my success to the amount of money that I earned. Yeah. And so I, when I wasn't, I mean, it was, you know, God, it took me 16 years to earn the salary that I had at Shell. And here I was overnight expecting myself to earn the same sort of salary and sitting there thinking, well, I'm clearly failing at this because I'm nowhere near that. Um, I, I think I made like got maybe $10,000 in the first year. Like seriously, that was what I made. And I felt so guilty about it because I had all these people watching me on um, LinkedIn and social media who were going, wow, what you're doing is amazing. This is fantastic. And I actually went out on a post and just said, if you're following me, your definition of success is um, financial gain or the money that you earn. You know, I'm not your person because I need to be completely transparent. I'm actually not making any money at the moment. But if your definition of success is around living a fulfilled and happy life and experimenting to actually bring your life more in alignment with the things that light you up and make you happy, then please keep following. But I felt like I had to put that honesty out there um, because it helped me um, to try and, like I say, to shift this limiting belief that I was not good enough or I was not successful because I wasn't earning half a million dollars a year. And I think that was probably um, the hardest thing to break because we, we are conditioned in the corporate world to believe that our success is attached to the title or the status that we have and equally the money that we earn. And I actually think that is fundamentally flawed. Mm. 
because it drives many of us, and I see this all the time through the people I work with, it drives many of us into jobs that actually just burn us out and, and, um, and keep us, I suppose, exhausted and on the hamster wheel rather than aligned with things that actually light us up and fulfill us. It's, it's quite interesting. Really interesting. Just as you were saying that, I was reflecting. You know, I stepped out of the sort of traditional corporate space um, from my role as CEO uh, about two and a half years ago. And you know, to be frank, it took me a long time to work out how to introduce myself. Uh, you know, it's so much value is placed on the what? What do you do? Mm. Um, and so that itself was a really interesting journey. And it was lovely when I finally realised that I wasn't referring back to what I used to do. Um, as you know as part of an introduction but it's a it's a big shift for people um, to move through so I want to get into um, there's three things in particular um, that stood out to me in your book and the words were focus courage and curiosity yeah <laughs> and I just wanted you to talk through uh, you know, I help people understand a little bit um, the importance of those, the, the journey around those, um, and, you know, what it is that hacking happiness is all about. Yeah. So um, probably about halfway into my journey, so probably about three years in, um, I was doing a lot of work with, you know, some of the biggest corporations in the world. Um, and, you know, I was very fortunate through my connections that the doors started to open up in that space. And what became acutely apparent to me was that I was competing, little B was competing in terms of the programs that I was running. I was competing with, you know, programs from some of the top business schools around the world. And one of the things that kept coming up was kind of, where's the evidence to support what you're teaching? Where's the data? And, and, and I think, Personally, this is one of the flaws of corporates, yeah, is that they, unless there's proof that this is going to work, they don't have an experimental mindset. And the thing is, the only way you come up with something that's going to work is through experimentation. That is what research is. Mm -hmm. So it became acutely apparent to me that if I wanted to continue to operate in this space and be, you know, as successful as I wanted to be in this space, I was going to have to come up with some sort of scientific methodology that I had validated that could prove the impact of the work that I was doing would actually help, you know, would actually help people be happier. And I think that if people are happier in their work, they'll be more productive. Yeah, they're likely to be more loyal. Um, they'll be more energised. There's so many benefits to it. And so I started to kind of, I had this in the back of my mind and I started to do a lot of research and I came across this concept out of Harvard. It was a HBR article and they spoke about an adaptability quotient. Okay. And I was like, oh my God, adaptability makes so much sense if I think about my journey and what I've been teaching people. I'm teaching people how to adapt to the environment, how to adapt to uncertainty and complexity, which is the fundamentals of what you have to deal with in order to realign your life to the things that matter. But what I found in this Harvard research is it didn't matter which way you cut it, the more I dug deeper into the research was that all of the research around an adaptability quotient, which was considered the new competitive advantage, was focused on how organisations could make people more adaptable so they'd become more productive. So it was all about, the way I saw it, it was about milking the cow to get more out of it. And I was just sitting there going, again, I feel this is back to front. What if we could actually teach people how to bring meaning and intention to the forefront of how they adapted? 
yeah, rather than just adapting for the sake of adapting. Because what I've noticed through my work is that human beings, and COVID is a perfect example of this, we, you know, adaptability is what's kept us alive. It's, it's a survival mechanism that is inbuilt. But we are very good at adapting when we are forced to do so, right? What we are not good at doing is actually disrupting ourselves to build skill and adaptability proactively rather than reactively, which is why so many of us struggle, even though we can adapt, yeah, we we're operating in survival mode when it's, uh, in, it's forced adaption. But when we operate in a space of intentional adaptation and proactive adaptation and build these skills outside of the force and in alignment with the things that actually matter to us, what happens is we become so much more, it's based on thriving, yeah? So rather than operating in a mindset of surviving, you operate in a mindset of thriving and you build the skills so that when these crazy times are imposed on us, the way that we approach it is fundamentally different. It's completely rational. And again, it's more from a space of intention rather than a space of how do I just keep my head above the water? So that was kind of the epiphany for me. And that was where the methodology that you speak about, I was like, okay, well, if this, if what I'm trying to do is create a method for people to be able to intentionally adapt, I need to sort of put a definition around that. And so I came up with the intentional adaptability quotient, which is basically, um, how skilled you are at making intentional change in a complex and uncertain environment that is evolving at speed. Um, and then I said, right, what would be this, the behaviours that someone would display if they had a high IAQ? And I was like, well, I know this because I've done it myself and I've worked with thousands, so I listed all of those out. And then I said, well, based on these behaviours and these mindsets, what sort of skills would be most helpful to help people turn the dial up in this space? And the three foundational skills that just came through every time we taught were teaching people how to focus in a world that's designed to distract them and how to create the space for the things that truly matter to them and the space to think more. The second thing was actually courage. So teaching people how to use fear and failure to shape the change that they want rather than as a barrier to actually stepping into it. And then the third component was curiosity, which is, and again, an innately human skill, but it gets significantly diminished by the constructs that we put people through, from school to university, you know, to the corporate life. And so we teach curiosity as a state of being, a way of showing up in the everyday. Um, we teach people how to have curious conversations and ask more questions than have opinions or statements. And we find that just by helping people turn the dial up on those three skills, it enables them, as I said earlier, to actually become more aware of the things that do matter to them in their life, the sort of life that they want to lead and start to orient, and orient their life through experimentation and practices closer towards those things. I um, particularly uh, like in the focus section, I'd never come across focus mates before. I interviewed the founder of Focus Mates a few weeks back um, on a live stream and um, his story is really interesting because he um, said that he was an expert in procrastination, which was why he created Focus Mate with a, with a friend of his. And basically the two of them just started to hold each other to account saying, well, these are the things we want to achieve. Um, we're sick of procrastinating. So why don't we show up every day on a Zoom call and we're going to work on the things that we're procrastinating about together and keep each other accountable. And there's science behind the fact that if you are accountable to someone else around a goal, 
um, you are more likely to make it happen, which is why I absolutely love Focus Mate. You, you use that to help you write your book, is that right? I wrote a book in three months, which I never thought I would be able to do. And basically I would get on Focus Mate every day um, at five o'clock in the morning. Um, and I would write for um, three hours a day, um, sitting there with some random stranger from around the world that they would connect me you know, through to. Um, and share my intention at the start of the session and I would sit there and write. And it was, again, it, it was amazing. No distractions, no checking phones or anything like that. Um, just sitting there, getting in a state of flow, working on something that mattered to me. Which is a theme that's coming up through all of the conversations I'm having in the series. Mm. And often that sort of courage space is around getting out of your own head. You know, like it's a, a mindset sort of um, thing to perhaps, perhaps it's, you know, where you say about getting over the fear sort of thing or using the fear to your advantage. Talk to me about what you mean when you say courage. Mm. So courage is basically shifting your mindset or how you look at fear and failure. And what I have learned is that it's funny when you say getting out of your own head, I actually think it's getting more into your own head. And I totally agree with, like, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. But if I think about it, I'm actually teaching people to get into their head more as an observer Yes. Yeah. Um, rather than someone who's just sitting there on the hamster wheel, if that yes. makes sense. Yes. So, yeah, when I talk about courage, it's about realising that fear and failure are two of the greatest levers you have to make the change that you want. And it goes against the grain of everything that we are taught. And so one of the, the other things that I've learned is that the language you use will determine your ability to make change. Words are powerful and if you can change your words yeah in terms of how you speak to yourself the words that you allow into your environment you will be astounded at what you can achieve that you'd never considered possible right so oh I'll give you an example um so if i think about fear yeah, so, oh gosh, I need to bring up definitions. So one of the first things we do when we teach people courage is we show them definitions of fear that are in the dictionary everywhere. So go and have a look in the dictionary at the definition of fear. Um, and basically it will say that fear um, is an emotion that is caused by the threat of danger, pain or harm, whether that threat is real or perceived. Right. So all of the words that we use as a society in relation to fear are negative words that actually make us physically want to repel from it rather than lean into it. And so one of the first things that I do is I get people to come up with their own definition of fear. And it's got to be a positive definition, right? So think of all of the words. When I say the word fear to you, think of all of the words that come into your head. And I'll guarantee that 99% of them are negative. Yeah. So we basically... I'm now trying to focus on positive words. Correct. So what we do is an exercise. I say, right, now I want you to think about fear, but I want you to challenge yourself to think about all of the positive words associated with fear. And people go, growth, mm -hmm. you know, experimentation, expansion. Like, 
The reality is that for every negative word associated with fear, there is an equally positive one, right? So make your negative list, the ones that immediately come to your brain, because that is how you are conditioned. That is your programming. Awareness is the first step to change. Then I want you to challenge yourself on the other side of the page in a separate column. I want you to write down every positive word that you can possibly think of associated with fear. And then what I want you to do is I want you to redefine your own personal definition of fear and you can only use those positive words. And even just that as a start point starts to reprogram how fear comes into here, yeah, and how you look at it in the external environment. That is really powerful. Something as simple as that is so powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And it's the same with fear, right? And so I keep talking about, sorry, a failure. I keep talking about experimentation. One of the most powerful things that I did, because failure in the corporate world is just like, it, it's not it's not celebrated, it's not talked about, um, you know, it's, it's, it's taboo and it has been for, forever. But one of the things that I did when I kind of stepped into this space, I was like, right, I'm going to have to reframe failure or this is never going to work. And so every time I was trying something new where I didn't know how it was going to play out and the likelihood was that it was not going to work out the way I intended, I was like, right, this is a test. This is a hypothesis that I'm willing to prove or disprove and I'm going to pilot it. So I'm going to make it as small as I possibly can as a test so that it really doesn't matter how it plays out. It's only going to be failure if I don't learn from the experience. And the reality is the outcome I'm not attached to the outcome doesn't matter because it will provide a stepping stone to where I'm meant to be. And so that reframe of language, basically, it just means that I'm not afraid to try anything now. Um, I took you off track before, but it's probably worthwhile we're on courage to veer back towards the swimsuit. <laughs> well, yeah, that was probably um, the beginning of me starting a practice that I, another practice that I teach people to help them be more courageous, which is micro bravery. And so micro bravery is the best way to proactively, you know, uh, build your courage and get comfortable with discomfort, which we talk about all the time, is to undertake one small act every day that makes you feel uncomfortable. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. It's only what makes you feel uncomfortable. That will build your resilience and it will build your courage and confidence to lean into bigger acts of bravery over time, which again operates in this space where you will astound yourself at what you're capable of that you are not aware of. So um, I started playing with micro bravery early on. And every time I did, I just realized that the things that made me uncomfortable, the things that I were afraid of, were where the biggest opportunities lie. And every time I stepped into it, yes, I got rejected. And yes, you know, things didn't work out the way I wanted to. But the reality was that was minuscule in comparison to the opportunities that it provided. So I got invited to speak at a conference in Melbourne. Um, it must have been about three years ago, maybe four. And um, they, it was 120 female professionals um, the conference was all about levelling up your career um, and basically they wanted me to talk about tactics for happy change. And um, I said, yeah, I can do that. And I knew that the other women that they had speaking were amazing. I knew a lot of them personally. I knew they'd be on their A game. And um, I also knew I had the graveyard shift after lunchtime. And they were serving wine. And I was like, how am I going to stand out? And how am I going to get these women to take away one nugget that is going to get them to challenge themselves to lean into possibility by stepping into discomfort? And um, I had one of those light bulb moments in the middle of the night about three weeks out. And I was like, 
that's what I'm going to do. And so I basically walked out onto that stage and did probably the craziest thing any woman coming from an executive corporate background would ever do. And I, um, I said, love me or hate me, you will not forget me. And I took off a bohemian wraparound dress that I'd strategically worn and I dropped it and I stood there um, in a bathing suit and said, um, if there is only one thing that you take away from today, it's that happy change is found when you learn to get comfortable in discomfort. And I can honestly tell you, can I swear? I can honestly tell you that it doesn't get any more fucking uncomfortable than this. And that was the beginning of my talk. Now, I've got a body built for comfort, not for modelling. I was 41 years old. Um, I had a standing ovation before I started my talk because I knew there was not a woman in that room that could not relate to how uncomfortable that felt because I'd married together two of life's greatest fears, public speaking and doing it half naked. Isn't that reversing the whole thing? Aren't you supposed to, when you're public speaking, picture everyone else in a bathing suit or, or less and you've just flipped it right around? So it's yeah. brilliant. I think that's fabulous. But it, you know, it impacted, and this is the power of micro-bravery, right? This is that if you had told me I would do something like that when I'd left Shell three years earlier, I would have said you were crazy. And there's been so many moments off the back of micro-bravery where things have happened and I've gone, oh, my God, I would never have imagined that this would even be possible, you know, five, six years ago. Yeah. But what was so powerful is that you don't realise that when you step into courage, when you step into these acts of bravery, not only does it develop you and give you growth and expansion, but the impact that it can have on the lives of others and how it can inspire them to lean into their own acts mm. is probably one of the most beautiful byproducts that you could ever anticipate. The last one was curiosity and this really resonated with me because you spoke about two types of curiosity mm. and um, and I'll get to talking to random strangers in a minute because it's an absolute hobby of mine and I've, I've always been paid out by many a work colleague over the years about the fact that I'd get on a plane and get off the other end with a friend um, <laughs> because I struck up conversations everywhere. But the two types of curiosity, it just made me think, I've always referred to myself as a curious person, but I don't, I don't know that I've been deeply curious. So talk to me about that. Well, firstly, can I just say I love your honesty because we have done a lot of research and what is astounding is how many people think they're curious, but when you, and that's why we do the assessment, the free assessment, when you unpack the behaviours and the mindset they have, they're actually not. Yeah, so we think we're highly curious, which is a limiting belief. It actually holds us back. Um, and the, and the behaviours, more often than not, that we are displaying show that we are nowhere near as curious as we possibly could be. I'm as curious as the stuff Google feeds me on my carefully curated feed uh, when I'm... But the, and, and the thing is, you're not alone. You know, we, this is the majority. And, and, and I was the same until I started playing um, in this space. But the two types of curiosity that I talk about are based on science. I've changed the names of them because, you know, the research can often be very academic. It doesn't often translate that well. So I just basically renamed them simply um, into two buckets, novelty curiosity and knowledge curiosity. Yes. And what I believe is that the reason we think we are so curious and are a little bit deluded in this space is that we're very good at novelty curiosity. 
So we have a question and we're like, oh, I'm just going to Google that and get the answer, right? So novelty and curiosity is like a quick fix. It's like a dope, well, it is, it's a dopamine hit. I've got a question, I want an answer, I'll jump on Google, I've got the answer, I move on, right? How old's Kim Kardashian? I always use that as an example, right? That is really not going to add any value to your life, okay? I will need to immediately Google it once we finish this, but you know, <laughs> it's not coming to <laughs> When we teach intentional adaptability, the type of curiosity that I'm talking about is what I call knowledge curiosity, yeah? It is basically curiosity that enables you to build and embed in your brain new knowledge that will help you progress further around the things, again, you know, that matter to you. So knowledge curiosity takes harder work. It takes longer. It takes deep thinking. It takes more than Google. Yeah, it's actually a combination of resources and experiments to actually fully um, explore something that is not going to take you two seconds to find the answer to um, on Google, for example. Um, if I think about, oh gosh, if I think about a, a recent example for me, you know, if I think about my knowledge curiosity, I've been practicing yoga for 15 years um, and I absolutely love it. And off the back of lockdown, I practice yoga every day and I keep saying it makes me sane. It's kept me sane and so grounded at this crazy time. And so when I walked out of lockdown, I was like, I've always been curious about yoga. I've spent 15 years, like this is not a short-term journey and I've learned a lot in 15 years. So I'm building my knowledge. I'm very curious about it, how it impacts our body physiologically, but equally how it impacts our mental health. And so now I've just literally this day, I have signed up to become a yoga, do my yoga teacher training. Now I'm not going to become a full-time yoga teacher, but I definitely feel this is connected to my work and it can only help my work. So, you know, I'm going to commit quite an amount of my time, again, building my knowledge curiosity by exploring this so I'm on a, some, you know, a, a much deeper level. So that's kind of what I'm talking about in knowledge curiosity. So I challenge your listeners to kind of ask yourself, you know, like, where are you building your knowledge curiosity? Where is it not a quick fix? And how often are you doing that? Penny, I'm, uh, your, your book is full of all sorts of practical um, and insightful tips. So I you know, wholeheartedly encourage people to pick that up. Um, I think it will help unlock um, something for everyone you know I think it'll be different depending on where everyone is at but I'm also conscious a lot of people might be watching this and thinking I could never do what Penny does I, you know I could never be Penny how would you respond to that my journey is not yours yeah. and each and this is why I call it hacking happiness right it's like pulling apart what happiness looks like for you and rebuilding the foundations so that you can align your life to inject more of it into each day. Now, the reality is happiness is not skipping down the streets and painting rainbows every day. That's bullshit. You cannot be happy every minute of every day. Yeah. Happiness is being able to ride the wave of every emotion that life throws at you, knowing you can come out the other side just a little better than what you were before, right? So if you take that mindset shift, this is not about what I've done. Yeah, my journey is my journey. And yes, I, through the nature of the work that I've done and the life that I've had, I've done some crazy shit. And I, the problem is the more crazy it gets, the more 
the more crazy it gets, you know, because you just, like I said, you just sit there and go, well, what else can I do? Each journey is unique. So this is one of those things where I say comparison, you know, is the thief. They say comparison is the thief of all joy. Don't sit there and compare yourself. This is what we're good at and compare yourself and your life to all of these people who have these picture-perfect lives on social media, which is just, again, bullshit. Sit there and work out what happiness looks like for you. You don't have to do what I've done. My happiness is not yours. Work out what your happiness looks like and then start, and this is what I designed the book for, start to experiment and see how you can cultivate yeah, practices in the everyday that will enable you to live your happiness, not mine. My own experience with that was, um, you know, we're, we're so busy. You know, busy, busy in, you know, many ways has become a bit of a badge of honour. And I really feel to do justice to answering some of the questions you're asking, you actually have to stop doing, you have to start being, and you need to spend some time, um, you know, which is the part where I agree with you about getting back into your head, not out of it, but you've got to spend some time to understand what does actually make you happy? Because I suspect there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't even know how to start that question. You know, do you have a hobby? No, I don't have a hobby. Um, you know, what's your passion? I don't know. Um, you know, you, you've actually got to slow down, I think, to answer some of those things. Penny, the final question that I'm asking everybody is, um, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like now? And do you think it needs to change? I think our mindset around what it looks like might need to change a little bit because I think, again, perhaps we have conditioned ourselves to believe in someone else's definition. So perhaps the most powerful thing is to ask ourselves the question that you're asking us. Oh, I love that, yeah. Yeah, so I think that it means different things to different people and coming up with your own definition is one of the most powerful ways to live and breathe what brave... Um, you know, feminine leadership looks like. But for me, in terms of my definition of what it looks like for me, um, it looks like taking the mask off and truly owning who you are, even though that can feel extremely uncomfortable at times. Mm. It can look like embracing the fact that not everyone is going to like you. And that is totally fine because the ones, the ones that matter in the context of your journey will connect with whatever it is that you're saying. Do you know what I mean? You will find your tribe. And the third thing I would say is, for me, brave feminine leadership is imperfect experimentation and it is relinquishing this conditioned, innate, crazy belief that most women have that we need to be perfect and we become perfectionists and completely get letting go of that and embracing this idea of imperfect experimentation because that opens our minds to trying new things and pushing ourselves into the realm of possibility um, rather than you know, having these limiting beliefs about what we're capable of. I will guarantee every single one of your listeners that they are capable of so much more than what they realize. And if they can start to embrace imperfect experimentation, they will stop leaving that potential on the table. I am so glad we met. <laughs>
I really am. Um, it's just been a, an incredible conversation and I'm sure that our listeners are, are going to want to know a whole lot more about you. So I'll make sure that's easy for people as well. But um, Penny, I can't thank you enough for being so generous um, and uh, so open and ready to jump on and have this conversation with me. So I'm truly grateful. These are the conversations that matter and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.